1: In the political ferment of the early 20th century in New York City, when socialists and reformers battled sweatshops and writers and artists thought a new world was being born, an immigrant Jewish woman from Russia appeared in the Yiddish press, in Carnegie Hall, and at rallies. She fought for socialism, contraception, and workers' rights. Her name was Rose Pastor Stokes, and what set her apart was not just the strength of her speeches or the passion of her commitments, but her marriage to James Graham Phelps Stokes, the Episcopalian son of one of the oldest and most elite families in the United States. The book, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, The Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes, illuminates this unlikely marriage, an era of great hopes, and how Rose Pastor Stokes rose from obscurity to fame before all but vanishing. I'm Rob Snyder, a Manhattan Borough historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University, Newark. Today I'm talking with Adam Hochschild, author of Rebel Cinderella. Adam is a master of deeply researched narrative history and is the author of 10 books, among them King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror and heroism in colonial Africa and Spain in our hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War. He's won widespread recognition for his writing and received the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award of the American Historical Association. We hear thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Book Network. Welcome, Adam.
2: Thank you, Rob. It's good to be with you.
1: How did you encounter Rose? Well,
2: I noticed your name for the first time this way. Uh, Many years ago, in the early 1990s, I was researching and writing a book about how Russians were coming to terms with Stalinism. Uh, My family and I lived in Russia for six months and I interviewed people who were digging up mass graves and who'd been in the gulag and retired secret police folks and so forth. And in my reading of Soviet history, I at one point in uh, the Hoover archives at Stanford, I came across a photograph of the American delegates to uh, a 1922 meeting of the Communist International in Moscow. And there in the front row was this quite striking-looking woman with a rather Jewish face and this New York high society name, Stokes. And I was so struck by this that I actually uh, made a photocopy of this, this uh, picture, uh, put it aside and thought, this is somebody I need to look into sometime. Uh, and uh, then I kind of got distracted by various other books that I was writing. And then five or six years ago, looking around for a book subject, I was reading a lot of early 20th century American history and realized that I was not the first person to notice this, this woman. And moreover, I realized that even though her name had previously been unfamiliar to me, and I suspect is <coughs> unfamiliar to 99.9% of American readers at the time she was, she lived, she was extraordinarily well-known. In fact, Uh, A survey done by a newspaper clipping service uh, found that for the years roughly 1918 to 1921, she was the woman whose name appeared most in American newspapers. There were half a dozen men like Woodrow Wilson and Henry Ford who were mentioned more often. But she was the woman whose name was most mentioned. (laughs) So that set me on the trail. Who was this person? Why was she so well known? And so forth.
1: So in your book, you quote Mabel Dodge, who hosted a famous Greenwich Village salon in New York City in the years before World War I. And about that time, she wrote, barriers went down and people reached each other who had never been in touch before. Why did that happen and how do Rose Pastor and Graham Phelps Stokes fit into this? Well, as
2: I began writing the story of this remarkable marriage, and we'll get to the details of that. I realized, and in fact was greatly helped in realizing this by a wonderful editor I worked with, Tom Mm Engelhardt, I realized that their story was also really a chance to tell the story of the progressive era in the United States, that remarkable decade or so uh, just before the United States entered the First World War, when... uh, you know, this country was alive with social and intellectual ferment mm-hmm. and where such an extraordinary array of people centered in New York City, centered in Manhattan. So I envy you being a Manhattan borough historian. <laughs> uh, I'm a native Manhattanite myself, but I, I live in California, uh, you know, centered in New York City. Here were these people, many of them attending Mabel Dodge's uh, Salon. Uh, who hoped to change the world and had this tremendous confidence that they could do so. And all of these folks came into the lives of uh, Rose and Graham Stoke. Okay, well, her story, she'd been born in Tsarist Russia, and she fled uh, there with her divorced mother when she was three years old, uh, settling first in London, Because uh, uh, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, the reformer Tsar, there was a series of terrible pogroms in Russia. And and that, of course, is what set off the enormous immigration of uh, Russian Jews out of the country, especially to the United States. So she and her mother came to Cleveland, Ohio, in 1890. uh, And uh, Rose lived there for the next 13 years of her life. Uh, She immediately had to go to work as a factory worker and a factory making cigars. And by the end of those 13 years, when she was 23 years old, she was the sole support of herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who had been abandoned by a 'er ne'er-do-well alcoholic stepfather. Uh, And, uh, you know rolling cigars is hard work you know these were you worked eight or ten hour days she often worked evenings as well trying to get enough money to help the family scrape by um, you know cigar uh, factories were terrible places the air was filled with tobacco dust and cigar workers had the second highest rate of tuberculosis in the united states only stone cutters had it worse uh, She did this work for 13 years Uh, at the end of that, and and no schooling during this time. She had had two years of formal schooling when she was in London, uh, learned to read and write English there. She spoke Yiddish at home uh, and mostly in the cigar factory as well. Uh, By the end of that time, she had started writing occasional pieces for a Yiddish language newspaper in New York for its English language page. And to her astonishment, when she was 23 years old, uh, the newspaper invited her to come to New York and work for them as a reporter at double the salary she was making as a cigar worker. So she saw her wage wages soar from $8 a week to $15 a week, which was a reasonable salary in those days. Uh, $8 was not. Uh And uh, so she arrived in New York City at the age of 23 in
1: 1903. So now you've worked as a journalist and you helped found the magazine Mother Jones. How would you rate Rose as a journalist in those years?
2: (laughs) Uh, Rose is a fascinating and remarkable human being. Uh, I would not give her high marks as a journalist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't think uh, anything that she wrote was... uh, Uh, terribly distinguished. But I think what distinguishes her is several things. One is that um, she uh, quickly became renowned as one of the great radical orators of her day. And there's account after account by other people who heard her speak Uh, Writing her letters saying this is the best speech I ever heard or accounts by newspaper reporters who said, you know, the audience wouldn't leave the hall after Mrs. Stokes had finished speaking, even though the lights were turned off, you know, one account after another like that. And if you read her speeches, you can see how artful she was at talking to whatever audience she was talking to. If she was talking, and these speeches, by the way, were mostly uh, promoting the Socialist Party, in which she was a very active uh, member. If she was talking to an audience of factory workers, she spoke about her own experience uh, in the cigar factories and what it was like and what she learned about speed-ups and so on. If she talked to a religious audience, as she did, for instance, going to the uh, Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York... She made her points about socialism by using uh, uh, quotations from the Bible. So she was a magnificent uh, speaker and impressed everybody who heard her. My one regret as a writer in writing this book is that it was just too early for there to be any recordings or film of her talking. Uh, when you're before World War I, uh, it's it's hard to, to find. Um So I couldn't find that. The other way in which I think she was distinguished uh, as a person, though, not particularly as a journalist, was that she'd made a remarkable journey in her own life. You know, after having worked nothing but this grueling factory work for uh, 10 years, she suddenly came into into a new world by virtue of her marriage to Graham Stokes, James Graham Phelps Stokes was his full name, Uh, but his friends called him Graham. By virtue of that marriage, she came into a world of uh, extremely wealthy New Yorkers, but also a world of socialist and radical intellectuals. You know, people like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Lincoln Steffens and John Reed and Mabel Dodge, whom you mentioned, and uh, all kinds of other people. And, she was able to be at ease in both those worlds she was able to get along with her husband Graham's family quite well even though their socialist ideas were anathema to his family uh, she was able to preserve relations with them and she was able to you know get to know all this extraordinary uh, range of people uh, and to be at ease with people of different classes at you know, so she could, you know, have dinner with Lincoln Steffens and one and John Reed one night, and then the next she would be out giving a speech in Yiddish to striking clothing workers.
1: And she sounds like someone with an extraordinary degree of empathy.
2: Yes, I think so. Uh, and there are several different accounts by people who knew her um, of that empathy, of her bursting into tears when mm. confronted with... Uh, human suffering in one way or another. So I yeah. feel I would have really liked her as a human being.
1: Mm-hmm. How did she meet
2: Stokes? Well, uh, as I mentioned, you know, she spent uh, all of her adolescence and, and young adulthood as a cigar worker in Cleveland, then was invited uh, by this newspaper, the Yiddish's Tagblatt or Jewish daily news to uh, come to New York, work for them as a, as a reporter. This she did, and about six months into that job, which had mainly considered was mainly, you know, writing feature stories about the neighborhood, which was the Lower East Side. Uh, you know, which was the Lower East Side itself was the largest Jewish thing in the world at that point, and this was a paper that had to fill up that English page every day, and you can almost imagine the editor uh, telling her. We've still got 15 inches we need to fill. Uh, Having worked at a small newspaper myself, I know what that's like. Uh, But then one day the editor sent her to interview somebody who worked at a settlement house. And you know what settlement houses were? These places that provided uh, adult education classes, um, baths and showers for people in tenements who didn't have them, uh, after-school activities for children, all kinds of uplift stuff for poor neighborhoods. The neighborhoods that settlement houses served were almost all immigrant and poor, like this particular settlement house, which is still there, incidentally, the university settlement on the lower side. But the people who staffed the settlement houses as volunteers were almost all well-to-do college graduates. So the guy she was sent to work, sent to interview at the Settlement House, was this man, James Graham Phelps Stokes, who came from the most different kind of background imaginable. As you can tell from the name, he was Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and his family was uh, one of the great American fortunes, uh, originally derived from the Phelps Dodge Mining Empire, but uh, they had branched out into uh, real estate in New York, mainly luxury apartment buildings on the Upper East Side. They also owned a cluster of gold, of, uh, gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad leading to them. And Graham Stokes was supposed to be sort of the scion of this family, but somewhat to his parents' disgruntlement, he had combined that role with this interest in socialism and social reform and uplift and uh, was working in this settlement house. So Rose went to interview him there and they fell in love and they courted secretly for two years and then, much to the well-concealed dismay of his family, uh, they got married in 1905. And the marriage was literally front page news in the New York Times. It was the lead story in the New York evening world. It was reported all over the United States, in England, in Australia. I've looked at these clippings uh, because it was so unusual. You know, this guy from this enormously wealthy family marries a factory worker. And even more unusual, this was a marriage of Jew and Gentile, which was unheard of in those days. So it it was, uh, you know, both a, a marriage with a class difference and an ethnic difference. And, of course, we're still interested in that kind of thing, uh, you know, as everybody follows the marriage of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle today. Well, that's a good question, Rob, because it's always it's always hard to get inside somebody else's marriage. But in a way, as a writer, I felt I had golden material to work with because they left so much in the way of written records uh they kept all their letters uh back and forth uh over the over the decades and letters that other people wrote to them they wrote to other people each of them wrote a memoir they are dueling memoirs because this marriage did not uh, happily And Rose kept a diary for a while. So what did they see in each other? I think for Graham Stokes, who was seven years older than Rose, he saw a woman who was more interesting in a sort of exotic way than all these proper, well-bred wasp young debutantes that he'd grown up with, none of whom he'd shown much interest in before. Uh, For Rose... Here was this man who, um, in a way, I think she was less attracted to his wealth than to the fact that he knew people like uh, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, uh, uh, Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair, who wrote the, the novel The Jungle that gave us our food and drug laws, he sent that novel chapter by chapter to Graham Stokes to ask for his critique as he was writing it. So I think Rose was tremendously excited by this whole intellectual world that Graham opened up to her. And she was also, she believed that uh, he was a genius and that he was as smart as all of these writers and intellectuals that uh, he knew. And I think it took her about five or 10 years to realize that actually she was a lot smarter than he was. He had multiple graduate degrees But she had an ability to navigate the world, an ability to talk to people at different class levels that he never had. Well, having grown up uh, in a, as I've mentioned, you know, she had six younger siblings. And, uh, you know, this was growing up in extreme poverty in Cleveland where when her mother got pregnant again and again and again, one of the big worries was, where are you going to get the $10 to pay the midwife to come to the house and attend to the birth? Uh, and she saw how that you know, repeated having of children, one after the other, had really deepened the family's poverty. And of course, these were the kinds of conditions that uh, uh, huge numbers of people lived with at that, at that time. You know, wealthy women who went to private doctors could confidentially get information about uh, what kinds of birth control techniques were available. And, and there were some, not as many as we have today. So she became an ardent backer uh, of, of birth control at a time when it was forbidden to talk about this kind of thing in public. Uh, Margaret Sanger, for instance, the great pioneer in the field, Uh, was sent to jail for opening her birth control clinic in Brooklyn. Emma Goldman served a couple of weeks in jail for distributing information about birth control. Rose, I think, hoped to get sent to jail because there was part of her that I think desired some sort of martyrdom. And the most spectacular example of this was when she was speaking in Carnegie Hall had a big rally held to welcome Emma Goldman home from prison, where Goldman had been imprisoned in, in, in for distributing birth control information. Rose began distributing leaflets about birth control from the stage. And, of course, was mobbed because this was forbidden material and everybody was desperate to get their hands on it. And, uh, you know, every newspaper in New York had a reporter at the Carnegie Hall to describe the scene, and they also described the policemen who were in attendance telephoning the station house for instructions on whether or not they should make an arrest and evidently receiving instructions that, no, they shouldn't arrest her. Um, As I say, I think Rose would have liked to have gotten arrested.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, several times in the book you point out that Rose was... Well,
2: I think having been a a reporter herself, she knew how newspapers worked, and she knew that reporters always love it when they get access to people. So after this marriage that got a tremendous amount of publicity, as I mentioned, they went off on a European honeymoon, then they came back and settled in New York uh, in an apartment Uh, on the Lower East Side, although pretty comfortable apartment. But when journalists wanted to come and see what this apartment looked like, uh, she welcomed them. And so we can see photographs of that apartment and we have descriptions of how Rose did the cooking there. And, uh, you know, yes, they had a cleaning woman who came in once or twice a week, but otherwise uh, no servants. And she was kind of, good at curating her public persona. She knew that, uh, and she did a lot of work also uh, helping to publicize the strikes that were taking place in New York at that time. So she worked with newspaper reporters about that. Uh, she uh, knew, for example, and you can tell from, from interviews with her that one thing a reporter loves when covering a story is to overhear back-and-forth dialogue. That's journalistic gold. So at one point on a speaking tour, she was in St. Louis, I think, and a reporter came to her hotel to interview her at breakfast. And as the waiter is serving them breakfast, Rose asked the waiter, hey, are you in a union?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> and, uh, you know, the reporter reported on that conversation.
1: So, so what did World War One do to to Rose, to Graham, and to the political milieu they moved in?
2: Well, World War I um, really caused a big problem in their relationship. Um, uh, We should remember, of course, that when the war began in Europe in 1914, the United States was not involved, and the United States was officially neutral for the first two and a half years of the war. I say officially neutral because, in fact, uh, we were... American industry was making huge amounts of money selling munitions to Britain, to Britain and France, but officially the U.S. was neutral. And the American left uh, was appalled by the war uh, because, of course, the great hope of socialist parties everywhere had been that the workers of the world would not fight each other. Uh, but, of course, they did so uh, very willingly. Uh And so there was great disillusionment. At the same time, the American Socialist Party and most other groups on the left felt strongly that the United States should not join this conflict. And when the U.S. did enter the war in April of 1917, the Socialist Party held an emergency national convention and uh, voiced strong and not quite unanimous, but almost unanimous disapproval of this move move, and was persecuted very badly as a result during the remainder of the war. Uh, Rose, uh, Graham Stokes, however, uh, who had been, uh, had always had a peculiar love for things military, despite his socialism, he had been in the cadet corps in school and in college, and he had served a year uh, in the Spanish-American War, not overseas, but uh, he'd been in the military here at home and played polo for his cavalry squadman's team. Uh, and he decided he was in favor of the United States joining the war, so much so that he actually enlisted and went into uniform. He was 45 years old, so he was too old to be sent overseas, uh, despite trying very hard to make that happen. So he never got closer to combat than marching down Fifth Avenue in parades of his National Guard unit, uh, New York National Guard. But he served in uniform in the New York National Guard for three years and felt very important because they were guarding reservoirs and water pipelines and things like that. Uh, Rose, after initially going along with his views for the first six months, finally decided she didn't agree at all, and that it was a terrible mistake for the U.S. to enter the war. And uh, she began saying this in speeches, and this created a tremendous rift between them, which was widened because they disagreed about the Russian Revolution. When the second stage of the Russian Revolution happened, November uh, 1917, uh, Rose was all for it, Graham was totally against it. So from that point on, they went different directions politically, uh, although um, they remained married uh, for another seven years, but very uneasily so.
1: Some of Rose's old comrades, like Gene Debs and Emma Goldman, remained radicals but had criticisms of the Soviet Union and didn't become communists. But Rose became a fairly doctrinaire member of the Communist Party. In contrast, what do you think explains that path? That's a good
2: question. And I haven't fully figured it out. I regret it because uh, of You know, I liked her so much in so many other ways. But one of the problems when you're a historian instead of a novelist is that sometimes your characters behave in ways that you wish they wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you're absolutely right that Debs and Goldman were, um, you know, they, they kept their radicalism, their belief in socialism, their passion for social justice but they both pretty quickly recognized that the Soviet Union was a horror show. Uh, Deb spoke of the Vatican in Moscow, laying down the law for the rest of the parties in the world. Uh, Emma Goldman went to Russia when she was expelled from the United States in 1919 with enormous hopes and became bitterly disillusioned uh, after living there for two years. Uh, Rose, however, I think one of the things that made her reluctant to question the Soviet Union in any way was that she had gone into a sort of a an intellectual and emotional tug of war with Graham, her husband. And the one clue to this is the following. So Rose, uh, you know, as as we've said, she became a pretty doctrinaire communist from the moment of the the second phase of the Russian Revolution onward, and then became a member of the American Communist Party and remained so formally for the rest of her life. But after she and Graham separated very bitterly in 1925, she stalked out of the house angrily and never saw him again. She wrote a very revealing letter to her best friend. And one of the things I like about her is that she could be very open about her feelings. And she wrote to her best friend, who was the novelist, uh, Olive Tilford Dargan, and said, you know, the strange thing is, as soon as I left Graham, I've lost all desire to do anything political. I don't want to speak. I don't want to be on the platform. Uh, I've lost all desire for that. And indeed, she lived only a few years after that, because uh, she got cancer and died at the age of 53. But during those remaining years, she did very little politically. She wrote poetry, she did drawings, and since as a matter of principle she refused to accept any alimony from him, uh, she had to go to work to support herself and was reduced to considerable poverty again. But she, her political activism pretty much ceased at that point. So I think in a way her... Her veering to the far left was in reaction to Graham's hmm. veering to the right.
1: Hmm. And doesn't she always sort of disappear from the public eye in the late 20s and early 30s?
2: Absolutely. When, As long as they were married, and they were married for 20 years, uh, they the American press was fascinated with this couple. The rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, Uh, And then they, you know, took up this tremendous crusade for socialism. And there are literally thousands of newspaper articles about them. Uh, They made front pages again in 1925 when they got divorced. And then because they were no longer a couple, the press completely lost interest in them. uh, Because neither of them by themselves was doing anything that sort of merited much uh, attention. Uh, she dropped out of sight pretty much completely uh, until her illness and, and death and really was went living in complete obscurity her last uh, seven or eight years.
1: You were born in New York City and large parts of this book take place here. Are there locations in the city where Rose's life and times come alive for you?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I uh, I unfortunately grew up in what seemed to me a much less interesting New York <laughs> than the New York of uh, John Reed and Mabel Dodge and visits by Kimbo <laughs> Haywood and all of those people. Uh, but I do love the city, and I do feel it's the capital of the world. And uh, uh, I was delighted that uh, some of the research I had to do for this book uh, took me back there because... I mentioned these thousands of letters and, and other documents they left behind. Uh, the bulk of them are in the library at Columbia and the Tamiment library at New York University. And I remember one uh, day after I'd spent a whole day at, at Columbia uh, where Graham's papers are uh, walking back to where I was staying and I walked across the, the uh Upper end of Central Park in the late afternoon, and just felt that delight that I get in New York sometimes. I counted, I heard four different languages in the space of ten minutes, and I thought this city really is the capital of the world. And I think that's the feeling that that Rose had. And of course, I you know tried to uh, prowl around the parts of the city where she had lived, but the Lower East Side looks pretty different today. You can go to the Tenement Museum, which is a wonderful place to get a feeling of what the old tenements were like uh, in her day. But uh, much of the rest, unfortunately, looks pretty different.
1: Your book draws on so many sources, among them files from the Bureau of Investigation, which later gets known as the FBI, and prosecutors' papers filed when Rose was charged with violating the Espionage Act, what did your research teach you about the surveillance practices and repression of radicals in Rose's time?
2: Ah this I love surveillance records. <laughs> uh, I uh I got interested in this first because uh I was pretty active politically in the 1960s. Uh my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were briefly civil rights workers in, in Mississippi. And then I was very active in the, in the movement against the Vietnam War. And because of the latter, uh, there w- was considerable interest in me by the intelligence agencies, <laughs> even though I was a mighty, mighty low man on that particular totem pole. Uh, and thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, uh, in the mid-1970s, after that was passed, I managed to get copies you know, they send you redacted copies, which name with names of informants blotted out and so forth, of records uh, kept on me by uh, the FBI, CIA, and military intelligence. I'd also been working for Ramparts magazine at that time, which did some major exposes of the CIA. And you know, I got more than a hundred pages of records, and I thought, "Wow, if they have a hundred pages on me, they must have." a thousand on people who were really important in that time, which I was not. Uh, And I got fascinated by the way these folks think, because intelligence agencies always assume that the bedraggled radicals they're spying on are as efficient and as hierarchical and as orderly as they themselves are. Uh, but of course we're not, we're disorganized. Uh, we often don't know what we're doing so on. So I'm always intrigued by what you can learn about the ways of thinking of the, the spies when you read their records of who they were spying on. So anytime I do a piece of history, I'm always looking for, uh, you know, are there surveillance records? And I've had wonderful fun finding those, uh, I did a book about the First World War, uh, which is in part about the uh, very brave anti-war movement in in Britain during this time. And I spent a lot of time in the Scotland Yard records, which are all now available. Uh, And uh, the... uh, Actually, for anybody who, who uh, works in this field, there's a huge trove of material from the Bureau of Investigation that's now easily and publicly available, uh, a lot of it online. Uh, so you can look up, you know, whether you're interested in Rose Pastor Stokes or anybody else, you can look up, you know, what the government spies were writing about them and uh, sometimes even try to figure out who these people were.
1: Now you've worked as a reporter and as a magazine editor. Both did that have any impact on how you came to write narrative history?
2: Yes, I think it did because uh, when you work as a reporter, uh, you're having to, you know, you're 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 thinking, what can I do to get my story on the front page? When you're working as a magazine editor, which I think is where I really learned the craft, because I did that for about 10 years at Ramparts Magazine, then Mother Jones, you're all the time thinking about your writing and the writing of people you're editing. Uh, How can this story be better told? Uh, Why didn't anybody read this piece I liked so much in the last issue? Because you get some sense of what people are reading when you get responses to a magazine. And... I think being an editor is a very good discipline because it forces you to look at whoever you're editing, whether it's your own writing or somebody else's. How can this story be improved to catch the eye of the reader, to make them turn the page, to uh, bring something alive through observed detail, through characters? So that's the way I like to write write history.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are
2: there any authors you read for good examples? You know, I think I learn more from novelists than anybody else Mm -hmm. because a novelist in a way has to uh, uh, meet a higher standard in that the novelist has to make us readers interested in people that we've never heard of, that Mm -hmm. we don't know. Whereas if a historian sets out and writes a book about you know, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or some other very familiar subject, they'll at least find readers you know, who have a particular interest in Washington or Lincoln or whatever. But a novelist has to meet a higher standard. So I think if, if you're a writer studying how to do narration, how to do suspense, how to bring a character alive. There's more to learn from reading good novelists than anybody else, although there certainly are historians who know those skills and use them very well. Barbara Mm -hmm. Tuchman is one of Mm -hmm. my uh, heroines on that score. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Toward the end of the book, you include a quote from Rose, which is part of a larger statement that she made on divorce laws. She says, Love is always justified, even when short-lived, even when mistaken, because during its existence, it enlarges and ennobles the natures of the men and women experiencing the love. What led you to make that choice?
2: Well, this was something she said when the news of their divorce became public. At that time, this was 1925, in New York State, uh, adultery was the only ground for divorce, and they'd had this very bitter falling out. Uh, neither of them at that point when at the point when they separated. Neither of them had been adulterous, but Rose began a relationship after she stalked out of the, their house. And uh, she tried to get Graham to move the divorce to another state where there were, you know, there could be different grounds for divorce. He wouldn't do it. And so the newspapers, uh, you know, reported this as Rose was the unfaithful party in this marriage. And, you know, uh, someone had observed her coming out of this guy's hotel room and so on. And she, you know, wanted to make a statement about the ridiculousness of these antiquated divorce laws. And that was where where the statement of hers that you just read uh, came from. But I applied it at the end of the book to the two of them uh, saying that uh, there was something ennobling about their love when it worked in that it made them into more significant figures than either of them would have been alone. I think either of them alone, had they never married each other, the world would not have paid any attention to or uh, Rose wrote sentimental poetry and was working for this small Yiddish newspaper, and I don't think had the kind of talent of her friend, you know, uh, John Reed. Uh, Graham never really found a role for himself in life. Uh, uh, He was a pretty minor figure in the Socialist Party. Uh, He had a hand in running the family business. He got very involved in his National Guard unit, but he never really found a central role. But during the time that they married, they were sort of a symbol that people of very different backgrounds and of different ethnicities. uh, And, you know, the difference between Jew and Gentile at that point was huge. Uh, Today, nobody thinks anything of it. But then it was a big deal that, that, that gap could be bridged and people could find happiness uh, with each other symbolized hope for a lot of people. And uh, they were
1: cheered by crowds when they appeared for that reason. You know, we live in a time of economic globalization that's transforming our cities. We live in a time of enormous economic inequality. What are the lessons of this book for our time?
2: Well, I think the real lesson is that a lot of these problems that uh, were pinpointed so eloquently and fought so bravely by people in the progressive movement at that time are still with us today. The disparity in income, the disparity in wealth between the top 1% and the bottom 99% today is greater than it was when Rose and Graham married in 1905. Um, You know, we live in a country where there are still tens of millions of people who don't have medical care. Uh, There are all kinds of social problems uh, that remain. Yes, living standards as a whole have certainly risen uh, over what they were a century ago. Uh, but there are a lot of people living on the margins in this country, and I do think that this last year we've lived through with the pandemic has steepened that curve of income and wealth disparity, has made those differences more stark uh, in every way. And that uh, we can you know, take lessons from the people who worked very bravely to talk about these problems and to fight to solve them uh, 100 years ago.
1: You know, I'm struck by how you've written about a lot of of radicals, reformers, and dissenters, abolitionists, opponents of Belgian imperialism, British opponents of the First World War and their military relatives, the Americans in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Is there something special about this generation in the progressive era that you find fascinating?
2: Well... There is. There's certainly. I, I'm at all these different points in history. I'm always fascinated by uh, people who fought to make a better world, uh, whether they succeeded, like this very extraordinary group of people in the late 1700s in England who began agitating against the slave trade and slavery, and finally did end slavery in the British Empire, or whether they failed, like the Americans who went off to fight fascism in Spain and sadly lost that war. Uh, and the progressives in the the first decade and a half of the 20th century in the United States, uh, I think you can say they both succeeded and failed. You know, They failed in the sense that they didn't stop the First World War, they didn't stop the United States from entering it, uh, they didn't achieve all the things they were working for then, but would we have things like Social Security and Medicare today if they hadn't started talking about uh, those things back then so you know I give them a lot of credit and I'm just also fascinated by the mood of the time that it mm-hmm. was a it was a political and intellectual moment where people before the uh, terrible news that the First World War had broken out. Before that happened, people were so optimistic that this country, uh, especially, uh, and the whole world, was on the verge of a of a great leap forward. That didn't happen, but I love the mood of expectation that existed then uh, among these folks I was writing about. Uh, I'm actually going back to that era uh, because in the course of writing this book, I was just reminded of how once the First World War broke out here, and then it was followed by the Red Scare period, uh, just how severe political repression was in the United States in the years 1917 to 1921. U.S. entry into the First World War provided an excuse uh, to do all kinds of things that people had been wanting to do for a long time. It provided an excuse for press censorship, which became very severe, which started April 1917 with the the excuse that the U.S. US was now in the war. But it continued for two and a half years after the war ended. Massive censorship, more than 400 Issues of American newspapers, magazines, and other political and other periodicals uh, were banned from the U.S. mail. Uh, it provided the excuse for political imprisonment on a large scale. Uh, in that era, more than a thousand people were sent to federal or state prisons for a year or more solely for things that they had written or said, not for any acts of violence. Um, It provided an excuse, you know, for the government to crush the labor movement, uh, smash the Wobblies, cripple the Socialist Party by arresting all its key leaders. And this is the period that I'm writing about, 1917 to 1921 in the U.S., and I think I've got a good cast of characters through whom to tell the story, which is always my main job when I start off uh, uh, doing a book
1: like this. Well, we look forward to that book and we thank you for the books that you've written up to now. Adam Hookshield, thanks for being with us today for the Gotham Center for New York City.
2: Thank you, Rob. It was a pleasure.